Hey gang, Tom Mullen here. Do you have a child who spends more time than you'd like in front of screens consuming low quality content? Well, you can turn that screen time into something fun and worthwhile. I'm talking about mini coders, an educational game based platform including companion apps made for kids with video tutorials, virtual assistant, and games where kids learn coding skills while they play in the Roblox metaverse, all under the safety and guidance of a virtual assistant and in-game tutors. MiniCoders is perfect for homeschooled, unschooled, or traditionally schooled children alike and helps them build 21st century skills and have a ball doing so. Right now, you can try out MiniCoders with no obligation by registering for a free trial at TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders. That's M-I-N-I-C-O-D-E-R-S. Again, just visit TomMullenTalksFreedom.com slash MiniCoders and start your free trial today. Every revolution starts in the minds of the people. Arm yourself for the war of ideas. Take back your life. Take back your liberty. Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Hello, everybody, and thanks for joining us at Tom Mullen Talks Freedom. Today, my guest is James Ostrowski. He's a trial and appellate lawyer and author from Buffalo, New York. He graduated from St. Joseph's Collegiate Institute in 1975 and obtained a degree in philosophy from the State University of New York at Buffalo in 1980. He graduated from Brooklyn Law School in 1983 and is a practicing attorney. Jim's also the author of several books, including Progressivism, The Idea That Is Destroying America, A Crime Against America, Essays Against the Lockdown, and his latest, The Libertarian Devil's Dictionary. He's also an adjunct scholar at the Ludwig von Mises Institute, a columnist for LouRockwell.com. And believe me, I could spend the rest of the show just listing the things uh, Jim Ostrowski is doing in the fight for liberty. But Jim, welcome. Thanks for having me, Tom. It's great. Great to have you here. Now, among all the things that you're doing, you, you've dedicated a, a large part of your law practice to defending people against the government. And that includes uh, defending people against the lockdowns and prohibitions on ivermectin. Is that right? Yeah, I, I was looking back on a couple of years ago, I kind of gave a, a little talk because I was 40 years in the movement, 35 years as a lawyer. And I, I look back on it, I started counting all the Bill of Rights that I've actually litigated. And it's, it's pretty much most of them, except for the uh, quartering troops. <laughs> Haven't had a quartering troops, but who knows in this environment, I may actually have one of those coming up. <laughs> but yeah, I, I've done criminal defense, which obviously involves the Fourth, Fifth, and Sixth Amendments. I've done... Uh, uh, lawsuits against the government for police misconduct first amendment which obviously involves the fourth amendment and the uh, and the first amendment and i've done i late in my career i started to do second amendment cases i've done quite a few of them we had a case that should have been in the supreme court but they decided to take the other case instead by the world's wealthiest law firm and uh i read the i listened to the oral argument the other day i was somewhat disappointed because i guarantee you if i had been up there it would have been a completely different oral argument so I've done lots of, uh, I, I kind of, you know, Hank Holzer, who's uh, my law professor, and he was Ayn Rand's lawyer in the 60s. He told me a long time ago, you can't make a living as a libertarian lawyer. And, and I can guarantee you that's true. But m my practice has 
generally speaking, been involved with defending people's rights. So I, I can sleep well at night. And, and as far as the lockdowns last year, I know you had at least one case. What were the particulars of that one and what grounds did you defend against them on? Well, very early on when, I mean, we didn't know what was going to happen, but when it was obvious around in May of 2020 that this thing wasn't going to end, um, and now I call it the forever lockdown, but uh, we filed a massive lawsuit in federal court against uh, Cuomo and the rest of the gang. And we challenged everything. We challenged his executive orders. We challenged closing gun shops, uh, stopping us from having political meetings. Uh, I was actually at that, that famous meeting that went viral where the, we, uh, we kicked out the, uh, the deputy sheriffs. And, you know, that was a good example of, uh, you know, they're, they're trying to break up an explicitly political meeting. And so we challenged all these things. We filed uh, um, uh, a motion for a preliminary injunction, but we never got a ruling from the court. And at some point, the court's clerk said, we think the motion for the injunction is moot. And I said, yeah, it's moot because they've repealed all the executive orders. But the underlying case is still pending. The um, They made a motion to dismiss. So, you know, basically we're arguing the guarantee clause means that you can't have executive orders. The due process clause means essentially the same thing that, and I made the point that, you know, Cuomo has no more right to issue these orders than I do. And that's, you know, so that is trying to illustrate the substantive due process angle there. But waiting for a decision, um, I can't obviously criticize a federal judge. Um, they're busy. He's certainly not lazy. And he does have a busy docket, but uh, very disappointed. But it, what, 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 what does, what it has been established is that in the greatest civil liberties violation, excuse me, since slavery, um, the courts have sat on the sidelines. So that's why we're moving on to more direct action tactics. Got it. And feel free to correct me after I serve this up to you, but I'll tell you what I've found in my own research. And despite what you and I might think about what the government should be doing, as far as the constitutionality of the lockdowns, briefly, the federal government is set up so that supposedly it has these enumerated powers and that's the only thing the government can do. The state governments, on the other hand, are pretty wide open and they they all have a bill of rights and basically say that the legislature can do whatever it wants unless it violates the bill of rights. Is that right so far? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's enormously complicated. And then you have the Civil War and the 14th Amendment. And so this is the whole structure of the thing is hotly hotly debated today and everything that you just mentioned is subject to dispute one side or the other so but more or less you're correct all right and, and i'm going to give the uh, government the, the widest possible latitude here for a moment just to say that okay so the legislature uh, the new york legislature passes an emergency law um or you know a law that allows the governor to declare a state of an emergency and then if he declares the state of emergency, there's a list of things he can do. And among those things is, I can't remember the exact words, but close down uh, yeah. venues of public amusement or something like that. So given that they passed this law, um, first of all, is that law unconstitutional under the state constitution? 
And if not, why, why isn't it okay for them to do this? Well, we didn't pursue the state constitution remedy and we didn't do it in state court. And I actually explain why it, it's that we don't trust New York state courts to rein in their politicians. And I cited a case that I did, which we call the pork lawsuit. It's actually Bordelow versus the state of New York, where we challenged the corporate subsidies, which are clearly barred by the state constitution. And the court uh, disagreed with us five to two, the highest court in the state. So I would never take these cases, these issues into state court. So everything was federal. So why it's illegal? Um, Because the guarantee clause guarantees a Republican form of government, and that's a government where the people elect legislators to make laws, and they never allowed, the people never delegated to the legislature the power to delegate that to the governor, and that's basically rule by decree. Now, the case law and guarantee clause is sparse and uh, complicated, but the I, the argument I made was this is the extreme case. This isn't one of these you know run of the mill pieces of litigation where some big company uh, throws in the guarantee clause. This is the greatest civil liberties violations in slavery. So this is something where the court should step in and say you've gone too far. So that was the argument there. Now we did make some other arguments. It's violation of due process. So there we worked through the 14th Amendment, and this is controversial among some libertarians. Uh, but uh, as a lawyer, I have to take advantage of all the all the uh, amendments that I have in front of me. So the 14th Amendment applies the due process clause to the, to the states, and we viewed this as a violation of due process pretty much for the same reasons under the guarantee clause, which is, but specifically, and I know due process sounds also complicated. When you break it down, it's really not. One of the elements of due process that doesn't come up very often is jurisdiction. And I gave the example, if I started issuing orders to everybody in the state to wear a mask, people would say, well, you don't have the jurisdiction to do that. You don't have the right to do that. I made the same argument with respect to Cuomo, which then goes back to whether he did, and that sort of loops back into the argument about whether the legislature delegated their powers. So those are the main arguments, but we also argued that uh, directly under the First and Second Amendments, uh, closing gun stores, banning public um, public gatherings uh, violates those, those amendments specifically. So those are the main arguments. And, um, you know, obviously we're gonna take it up if we lose, which we, we may lose, we may not, I don't know, but we'll take it up to the Second Circuit and the Supreme Court. I have a different philosophy from the big gun groups. I want an answer from the court and like the uh, uh, Tom Hagen said in the God, Godfather, I'd prefer my bad news fast <laughs> because if the courts aren't going to enforce, I said that right in the brief, it's like, if you're not going to enforce the Republican guarantee of, guarantee of Republican government, can you send somebody over to the National Archives and have them deleted from the Constitution? You know, so I, I'm very, I'm very blunt in the way I write legal briefs. I have a very different style, um, and so I, if we lose, we if we lose, it's like Edison said. Oh, now we figured out some way not to do something. We better figure out another way to do something. I want the bad news um, on the Second Amendment same issue. I, we, we said that the government doesn't have the right to license a right. 
And it's funny, I'm going to do some more work on this, but Judge Kavanaugh basically said, well, you haven't challenged the licensing requirement. I'm thinking, oh, I wish I had been there. I wish I had been there because I did challenge the right of the government to license the Second Amendment. And people say, well, they're going to rule against it. That's fine. That's fine. At least we then know that the government is saying that there is no right to bear arms. And then we plan accordingly. Right, right. And um, even though you did go the federal route, it it seemed like to me, a a, a non-attorney, that I went and found this law and I could read the list of things that he's allowed to do. But he went way beyond anything that's in that law as well. I mean, he was just thinking things up day by day. I think today, because of some dubious bit of medical data, we're going to come up with this new thing. It just seemed like he was improvising all the way through. Completely improvising. And then we we put in a lot of documentation um, as to the fact that none of this has any rational basis. One of the things I like to do, I did in the Second Amendment case, I like to put little formulas out there to say, this is what the other side has to prove. And nobody ever answers my formulas. They just ignore them, which I get a huge kick out of. But in the in the lockdown case, you'd have to show that these measures worked without causing more harm than they than they caused. You think that would be a simple thing, but in, you won't find that formula in any of these cases. And I put it out there and I said, no, that's not true. In fact, they'd never be able to prove it because it's impossible to prove things like that. And therefore we win. But, you know, therefore the judge is still waiting, to, is still issuing, is still working on his decision. So hopefully we'll. We'll have it soon. But as I've made clear in my books, I am a skeptic about uh, the ability of government courts to do justice. And that's an understatement. I philosophically believe that they do not have that capacity. And nothing in my 38 years of law practice has persuaded me to the contrary. Yeah, I, I imagine it hasn't. Um, I, I, at one point, probably a very brief period, was a believer in constitutional government. And uh, I mean, even the, the so-called um, proper role of government, where they defend our lives and our liberties, they stink at that. I think they they don't solve about half the murders and um, and even less of the robberies. So I, I don't know that there's anything they're good at. It, it It's all Afghanistan. It's all 20 years and nothing gained. Well, in, in progressivism, I went into the what I call the constitutional, the fallacy of constitutionalism. And I'm not saying that the Constitution doesn't have good principles in it. It does. They were mostly put in by the libertarians of the day, the Bill of Rights, and a few rights provisions in the body, like the habeas corpus and uh, uh, the guarantee of Republican government. But the the constitutionalism as a procedure fails because there's no way to enforce it. How are you going to enforce it? Well, you go to court and they, they, they throw you out. So what are you going to do? Well, I'm going to get a bunch of people together and form a militia. Well, <laughs> but, which is literally would be your option that you might consider. But the whole point of a constitution is to avoid war. I mean, if, if we don't need, uh, if you're going to have a constitution and then, oh, we, we'll, we only can only settle it on the battlefield, I think it kind of pretty much shows that it's, that's a failure. And my, and my professor, uh, Henry Holzer, wrote a book called Sweet Land of Liberty, went through case after case where 
the gold clause, the obscure things, ipso, ipso facto laws and bills of attainder, all this weird stuff that's in the Constitution. In almost every case, it's been decided in such a way that the government gets more power and we have less liberty. Isn't that odd? What when, a coincidence. Yeah, when you're suing your opponent and they get to pick the judge. So it's it's a sham. Constitutionalism, you know, there's a lot of people on our side who talk about the rule of law. I love these professors. These guys have never been in a courtroom. I call. I wrote a column for Lou one time called The Rule of the Lawless, which I got a big kick of. It was about some New Jersey decision involving the, the senator over there. But yeah, um, I'm going to be writing more. My, my final major book is going to be hopefully tying all these things together and going back and reading Hobbes and Locke and Aristotle and answering all the, the arguments uh, of our opponents and setting forth, you know, what I believe is uh, the, the, the libertarian position on this issue. It's that time of the year again when we're all looking for something special to give friends and loved ones for the holidays. Unfortunately, the government and its bank have worked especially hard this year at doing what they do best, make things more expensive for the rest of us. Well, I have great news. You can get a free copy of my new ebook, An Anti-State Christmas. That's my gift to you in appreciation for listening. But that's not all. I've also made the book available as a paperback at an incredibly low price, so you can get a few copies to give as gifts. It makes a great stocking stuffer. And don't worry, this is not some preachy libertarian treatise. It's full of fun and even includes a special Christmas beverage recipe. Get more information and your free ebook at antistatechristmas.com. We help each other when we don't mean to. That's what we call the invisible hand. Something no politician understands. Just leave it up. I don't want to get too far afield, but one thing you said about the Bill of Rights and a few a few clauses that are basically prohibitory are the best things about the Constitution. And you know, I know back at, um, when the Federalists were pitching it to everybody else who were suspicious about it, they were arguing, "Well, you don't need a Bill of Rights because the government's only going to be able to do." what's in there. And, and if you have a bill of rights, people might start thinking that that's the only thing the government can't do, like almost thinking about it backwards. Right. And, uh, and I think, I mean, in a perfectly logical sense, that was, that was a sound argument, but thank God we have it. I mean, it really is the only, the only good thing that's left is every once in a while, it, you know, somebody takes seriously, Congress shall make no law. Well, and I'd, I'd recommend Brutus, uh, Antifederals Number 1 by Brutus, who was actually Robert Yates, a New York judge. I think he was from the Albany area. He, he said this constitution will lead to a gigantic government, and by golly, he was right. <laughs> yeah, they were all right, it looks like. So, again, we could talk about your cases probably for the rest of the, the time we have here, but... You've got something else going on outside your law practice called Take Back Christmas. What's that all about? Well, we were brainstorming um, Angela Bittinger, who's a heroic teacher who, who uh, refused to get vaccinated and uh, lost her job. We were brainstorming about it. 
about this whole thing and what are we going to do and just well people are going to get fired they're not going to be able to pay their bills we started going through like what are the things that Americans kind of waste their money on and there's a whole long litany and I don't want to tell anybody else how to live uh, I certainly wish I had three SUVs in the driveway, but just, <laughs> just for an example, I have one old SUV in the driveway. But one of the things that occurred to me that people waste a lot of uh, money on is, is Christmas presents. And then when you think about it, who's getting this money? It's the same people who favor the lockdown. So we very quickly said, you know, let's kill a lot of birds with one stone. Let's let's do this take back Christmas where we urge people to buy local um, donate their time, make their own gifts, and starve the beasts of the lockdown. Because if you look at it, which which big business in America has opposed the lockdown? Well, the only thing the only thing we could think of is my pillow. <laughs> By the way, I do have a my pillow, and it's a good product. But really, no, it's best pillow I ever had. I'm a pillow freak, and is the best. Seriously, is the best pillow I ever had. No, you know, I'll tell you what. This isn't. I don't get any. You know, I, they're not a sponsor of the show or anything, but. When I saw that he was being canceled, whether I agree with everything he talks about or not, I went and bought four of them and I thought, yeah, a $50 pillow, come on. And I swear to God, it really made a difference. I started sleeping through the night in my mid fifties again for the first time in five or six years. But the bulk of big business, and we really can't think of a really big, big business that favors individual liberty over the lockdown. They're all too ready to start you know, man, firing people under Biden's illegal uh, uh, mandate. So we figured, you know, let's instead of spending $1,500 on Christmas, spend $500, put the thousand in the bank and spend all the uh, 500 on local businesses who oppose the lockdown. So that's the concept. We just started it. Uh, the, the website's up. It's sort of skeletal, but people can fill out the form. It's take, take, takebackchristmas.net. It's $25 for a listing. And I'll tell you, I mean, I'm, I'm committed to spending my small Christmas budget on the people who uh, join this movement. Um, and, and we're going to try to keep it going later and just have sort of a buy local. Now, in theory, yes, for the libertarians out there, yeah, I believe in free trade. I believe in a lot of things. I believe in fighting tyranny, too. And if you have a better idea than starving the beast of big business that's that's favoring the lockdown and suppressing information about the lockdown, and of course, every dollar you spend on, on, uh, uh, on big business, the government takes whatever, 40%, 50%, we can argue about the figures, certainly the sales tax. So um, starve the beast. Um, we and we need to. The other principle here is we are we have been a punching bag. I'm sick of being a punching bag. I want to punch back, and I don't want to. I don't. I want to pick a battle that I, where I choose the battlefield. That's Gettysburg was decided by the by who got the high ground. Okay, you got to pick a a good battlefield, and the battlefield is what money in my bank account. I control it. They can't tell me what to do with it. And I am not going to spend money on, on big business unless it's something, I, you know, obviously certain firms have a monopoly. I have to use Amazon on my book sales because they have, a, they have a global monopoly. But when I have a choice and it's not a necessary business expense, I'm going to buy local. I've been kind of doing this for years, but it's, re, it's reinforced uh, my uh, desire not to spend my money um, favoring corporate corporations that have a left progressive globalist big government agenda. I'm done with that. So that's the basic idea. We hope it goes viral. We hope it goes global, frankly, because Christmas is celebrated in, in uh, all the continents in the world. 
And uh, that's the idea. We hope people uh, get on board and we're going to, we have an, another more direct action projects that one has to do with the schools and one I don't even want to say because I don't want the bad guys to know I'm coming for them. <laughs> all, all legal and peaceful. Everything I do is legal and peaceful. And my view is that violence is a failure of the imagination. So anybody who gets involved in anything I'm doing will know that to the best of my ability as a lawyer, everything we're doing is legal and peaceful. Yeah, that's that's a, a good point to make. And the other one that you make is, and, and I agree, I'm I'm also uh, for free trade. I, I want no tariffs on anybody. I want no restrictions, no restrictions on labor. But not buying somebody's product is also free trade. That's right. And, uh, you know, that's that's what started the whole brouhaha with the tea back in the uh, in 1773 was uh, boycotting the East India Company. So um, th- there's good precedent for for what you're talking about. I, I don't have the platform to do it. Maybe we, you know, neither of us could make a dent, but for every conservative out there who objects to Facebook shadow banning or, or those sorts of things, I always say, what if 70 million people deleted their accounts on the same day? Okay. Yeah. Maybe Facebook has billions of users, 70 million Americans in the richest country in the world. That would make a difference. That would get somebody's attention. Yeah, that that's that's definitely uh, uh, something we need to do, and you know because re- there's, I think that really uh, our only problem is that we're not organized. Our opponents are better organized than we are, but when you look at the talent base of let's say the half of the country that doesn't favor left progressive totalitarianism, we have way more skills than the other side, and we have a a, f- a few bucks. Um, so we just need to get organized and I think we can, uh, I think we can win this battle. Yeah, certainly the, this is probably the scariest time in my life. And I've been around a few years as far as government tyranny. It just seems like, you know, I've been complaining about it for, you know, at least a couple of decades and this is exponentially higher than I've ever seen. And, and, and the complacency really, really scares me. I mean, more than what the government is trying to do, what scares me is not what people on television say. We all know why they say the things they say, but when your neighbors start repeating those talking points and, and arguing in favor of lockdowns or vaccine mandates, that that's what, that's when I really start to get scared. At the same time, we're hearing all sorts of really great things like maybe uh, Texas ought to secede or or maybe Florida should leave OSHA, uh, things like that. So makes the ground ripe for, for some good stuff, too. Well, we found out that, frankly, about half of the country um, are easily led by the nose to support totalitarian policies that have, that have no evidentiary basis whatsoever. So it's like, and, you know, what do you do? I wrote a 4,200-word essay attacking the John Carroll mandatory vaccine policy, and I demolished it. I mean, as a trial lawyer, I, I demolished it. There's nothing left standing. So I don't think I changed anybody's mind. So I don't think anybody's home behind, behind the eyes of some of these people. And that's why I said, you know, I'm almost tired of talking to them. Uh, I'm going to separate. I'm going to just deal with the people for the rest of my life that don't want to stick a needle in my arm and don't want to put a mask on a two-year-old. They're not child. I don't want to deal with any child abusers anymore. These people are child abusers. I mean, you think about it. I'm just thinking about this out loud. I don't want to deal with child abusers in my life anymore. 
and that's going to come at some cost because you know you have lifelong friendships and so on and, and and family but at some point you have to draw the lines like eh i'm a huge believer in family but i kind of don't like child abuse more so <laughs> gotta make these tough calls and i'm people know where i stand they don't even you know people i know they don't even they don't even mention these issues because they know they're going to get it <laughs> hard so uh yeah i i'm done i i this 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 is this is the lowest point in the history of, a, of, of what I think was history's greatest uh, nation for ordinary people with with obvious flaws we know, we don't know about. But the you know the other countries they had the flaws too. They didn't have the they didn't have anything good about it. So the, this country you know in the sixties because my age I saw was I think the last remnants of what America was over the decades people were i don't know how to describe it it was you had you had to be there people were happy uh i don't see that when i'm driving around you're driving in a car and it's like indianapolis 500 speedway and you know why you know everybody's broke stressed out trying to pick up their kids at daycare the the country that that i saw in the 60s uh it doesn't exist anymore and it's so sad and, and people who are younger than me don't even know that that place existed with all its flaws we know what the flaws were i'm not denying any of the flaws i'm talking about the about the the features and the and the positive things about that country those were real sorry folks those were real don't tell me they weren't because i lived it Right. And that's a, that's a great thing about being a little bit older is that, you know, you do remember something else. I was um, just looking into something the other day and it turns out that the highest decade for German immigration into the United States was the 1880s. And the 1880s happened to be um, the decade where Bismarck established government health care. So, I mean, wouldn't, you know, people who are clamoring for Medicare for all today you know, we had a million and a half Germans that were offered it and decided to come to America. There wasn't gov government anything at the time. That's right. Uh, and the best president in our history, in my estimation, Grover Cleveland, was vetoing everything in sight. So, um, you know, there's, people were voting for their feet for more freedom, less government back then. Well, that's really interesting because my um, part of my family were Polish, but they were German citizens. So they might and they came around that time. And they uh, they might have come over uh, for that reason. And I like to say, you know, when my family came over here, there was no federal welfare state. The, the federal government was basically the post office. Whenever in, instead, in, in, uh, until Woodrow Wilson decided to get involved in this idiotic war in Europe, um, so my people came here for freedom. And the question that I have is, where do I go? Do I go back to Poland? Do I go back to Ireland? Ireland is turning quite globalist. Poland. I, I, well, globalist. it's Somalia, Jim. Yeah. Somalia. Yeah, I'll go to move to Somalia. <laughs> yeah, I'll go to Somalia because that's the libertarian paradise. Because, you know, I, right. I and Rand's books are in every, uh, you walk into a house in Somalia, there's <laughs> a complete set of Rand's uh, books on capitalism there. <laughs> it's funny, the left, they, they don't, they never even pick up a libertarian book, but they're an expert on it, you know. <laughs> So, yeah, and it's always Ayn Rand, right? So, the, yeah. who hated us, by the way. But she did some great stuff, but she didn't like libertarians. She doesn't like sure. libertarians. No. Well, great, Jim. I really appreciate you being on. Definitely, I'm going to put uh, Take Back 
christmas.net on the show notes page and also a link to your bio on Amazon where people can check out your many books. Um, anything, anywhere else you'd like people to go between now and the next time we have you on? Well, I know they're establishment social media, but I, I do a lot of work on Facebook. I'm easy to find. I kind of use it, you know, as a writer. It's funny because you're supposed to have a notebook and I was too lazy to have a notebook. But uh, Facebook is kind of my notebook because a lot of the things I post there are just off the top of my head. They end up in books or they end up as a piece of a book or they end up being de further developed. So people want to see, you know, how my thought process goes. I'm on Facebook and, and Twitter. I'm trying to get a locals page. I have uh, I have some I have a, a podcast at YouTube that's been inactive, uh, but I'm going to get back on it. And when I have when I get sort of fully retired from practice of law, which I'm hoping to do soon, I've been saying that for years. It's a running joke, but it's true. <laughs> all right. Well, we'll certainly put up all of your uh, social media links and, uh, and, and everybody, you should check out everything Jim Ostrowski is doing, uh, both with his law practice, his many, many books, and all of the uh, direct action projects he's doing. Jim, thanks so much for being on. Thanks a lot. It was, it was a lot of fun. Appreciate it. Okay, friends, that's going to do it for today. Don't forget to get a free copy of my new ebook, An Anti-State Christmas, at antistatechristmas.com. And if you like the music you've heard on Tom Mullen Talks Freedom, you can hear more at tommullensings.com. Thanks for listening. The war of ideas has only just begun. Arm yourself with the knowledge you need by heading to TomMullenTalksFreedom.com and subscribing to our email list. And remember, every revolution starts in the minds of the people.